you're a note taker, this is in the app in the notes section, but here's a main idea for you today. The church is called to obey Jesus faithfully even when the calling is challenging or painful. Trusting Jesus in this way allows him to be glorified through you. So we're called to be obedient even when the calling from Jesus is challenging, hard, painful. Acts 21, starting in verse 1, it says, And when we had parted from them, we set sail. We came by a straight course to Kaz, and then the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing into Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria, and we landed at Tyre, for the ship was to unload its cargo. So here's where we are. We're, we're picking up the passage in a transition point, right? We're in, the back two thir- we're in the back third of the book of Acts, right? We've gone through the birthplace of Acts, or the birthplace of the church in Jerusalem. As Acts begins, Jesus has been crucified and rose from the grave. Jesus is meeting there with about 120 of his disciples in an upper room. Last week, we said it's not much different than this. Right, that, that Jesus is there meeting with just over 100 people. He's in a room carved out to gather with them. He is telling them that he's ready to ascend back into heaven, and he is commissioning them as his church. And really his commission or his calling to them at that moment, he says, wait here in Jerusalem until my spirit comes upon you, until the Holy Spirit comes upon you with power, and then you'll be my witnesses here in Jerusalem, where they were, to the surrounding communities, Judea and Samaria, and then he said, until the ends of the earth. And we make up a piece of that. We are, in fact, it's hard to be any further away from Jerusalem than we are here, right? We are as far to the ends of the earth as really as you can be from there. And I'm sure there is something statistically on a globe that one of you is dying to point out to me that there is a country further. (laughs) I know. Just work with me, all right? We're pretty far away. We are the ends of the earth for the commission of the church in Jerusalem. And so that's what he's saying. He says, wait here. You can't do this. This is not a work we do. This is not a strength we have. This is something that God must empower us to do. So when God comes upon us, the Holy Spirit comes upon us in power, he enables us or empowers us to be the people he's called us to be, to do the things that he has called us to do. And he's done so when we saw the church break out into Jerusalem, tens of thousands of people come to faith begin to follow Jesus in Jerusalem. It's literally the first church and the first megachurch all in one. Tens of thousands of believers. As persecution hits, we see there's, there's, uh, there's this season of pushing those Christians out beyond their comfort zone, out beyond their, literally their living space. So out beyond Jerusalem where they live, out beyond their homes, drives them out of their community. We see them then go and tell others about Jesus and take root in other places, Judea and Samaria, countries bordering Jerusalem. We see them push past that. We see them go to Antioch and Syria. We see them go to other places, Ephesus. We saw Paul spend time in Ephesus. We see the gospel keep moving forward. The gospel will actually leave Asia, move into Europe and northern Africa by the time the apostles die. We'll see it take root in large spaces over large continents and the church break through. Paul has been a major contributor to this as he has left his home and he has gone from being a persecutor of Christianity to a Christian, a follower of Jesus. He's gone from killing people and persecuting people who proclaim Jesus as God to being one who proclaims Jesus as God. 
And as he does this and he goes along and he sees people come to faith, as he shares his story with them, shares the gospel with them, he helps found little communities around following Jesus, otherwise known as churches, local churches. Now, Paul is doing this, and Paul has had a sense from God that God is calling him back to Jerusalem. We saw this in Acts 20 just last week. It says, and now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprison and afflictions await me. Here's what Paul says. God is calling me back to Jerusalem. God has something for me to do back in Jerusalem, back where, kind of where I come from. And I don't know exactly what that's going to look like, but here's what I do know. That it'll be painful and I will be arrested and I could give my life for this. And every city I walk into, God confirms to me that I'm going to go back. And that as I go back, it's going to be hard. And so here's Paul setting his face towards Jerusalem. There's a a beautiful passage in the book of Mark, right at that pivot point, as Jesus is done with his three years of ministry, and he is turning towards the crucifixion, and it says he set his face towards Jerusalem. And I can just imagine this going and turning, and as he sets his face towards Jerusalem, he knows he is headed to the cross. See, Paul is imitating his Savior He knows that the the message of the gospel, that the calling of the gospel, the mission of the kingdom is greater than his own comfort. And so he sets his face towards Jerusalem like his Savior did. And he begins to work his way back. Now I just want to push pause. Now that sounds all holy and glorious and amazing. But Paul actually exists in a real church filled with real people like us. All screwy, jacked up, not perfect, right? On our best days, right? That's where this story takes place. It takes place in a human church filled with real people, not superheroes. And so Paul begins to set his face doing the right thing that God has called him to do, knowing that there is pain and there's suffering ahead of him. But he does so in a real church like this one. Verse 4. It says, and having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. So as he enters into this new city, he finds a church. Now, he's gone through all these areas. He's proclaimed Jesus. He's handed off churches to elders. He's, he's done what God has called him to do. And as he's circling back, there's, there's this trail of churches behind him. And as he's going towards Jerusalem, he's pausing in cities, cities he's been a part of, cities that he's visiting for the first time. But he goes in and he finds a community of believers. And here's what this community of faith does. It says, and having sought out the disciples, meaning the followers of Jesus, we stayed there for seven days and through the spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Now this verse is a little confusing. Through the spirit, the spirit is telling them what's going to happen. The Holy Spirit testifies inside of Paul and is doing so inside other people that as you get to Jerusalem, they're going to hurt you. They're going to arrest you. They will beat you. They will persecute you. They will afflict you. Paul knows it, and the church knows it. But the church's response is this. Paul, don't go. Paul, don't do it. Like, they're waiting there to trap you, to arrest you. They're waiting to abuse you, to beat you, to afflict you. They're there, ready, don't go. Now, it's a human. It's a real group of people. It's a human church. And so as they hear what's going to take place in Jerusalem, 
They can't understand how God can be in this. If you're a note taker, here's, here's a note for you. Suffering and struggle. The church doesn't understand hardship and often equating it with God being absent. Here Paul is being faithful and will be used for Jesus greatly in the midst of struggle. We speak to this because we exist in the Western church, meaning, Western meaning mostly American, but European church too. The church is uh, far past. A lot of people in America will say we're in a post-Christian setting where Christianity as a norm is gone. That's true. Europe is a step further. And so understand the Western church is that Europe, American kind of educated world, if you will, that, that piece of the puzzle that kind of led through some of democracy and some things like that. The Western church particularly in this, has no paradigm for suffering. Now just, I know we have to imagine a bit, and I won't spend much time here, but imagine you live in a place where Christianity is persecuted. You live in a Muslim nation or a, uh, a communist nation that persecutes Christians. There's lots of settings where Christianity is persecuted. Now imagine you live in one of those settings you may read this verse entirely, you might read this entire passage, this book, for that matter, that's driven by the persecution of the church. You would read this differently if suffering were a part of your life. If, being, if, if suffering for your faith, for being a follower of Jesus, if people persecuted you because you claim to follow Jesus, you would see this passage different, differently. Is that right? Do you understand how you would see suffering in the church? Like, no, you can't go there. And they're like, we live this. Like God meets us in our suffering. See, the Western church doesn't have a paradigm for hardship or suffering. We're terrible at this. Now, it is amazing that we have freedom of religion here. It is amazing that we get to choose the path that we're on in that setting, that we get to have the faith we have and that we get to do the things that we do, that we get to vote, that we get to do all these things. And many have fought and died for that right. And so hear me when I say this, it is amazing that we have those kind of freedoms. But because we have those kind of freedoms, sometimes we miss some things. Sometimes we don't understand persecution. We think persecution is, well, I work in a public school and they won't let me share my faith. That's not persecution, really. I mean, don't get me wrong, sometimes that can be challenging. People have lost jobs to it. I get it. That's different than losing your life. Literally, like Paul, losing your head over it. So there's a difference. We don't really have a paradigm for true suffering and persecution in the church. We read things about martyrs on the other side of the planet. We read things as ISIS is, is going through Egypt and crucifying Christians just a year or two ago. Like we read that and it's like we're reading this. It seems so far away from us that we really don't have a paradigm for it. So here's Paul in this church, and he says, listen, I'm going to Jerusalem, and I know that the Holy Spirit has told me that in every city that I go to, he reconfirms the fact that by the time I get to Jerusalem, it's going to be ugly. And the Spirit says that in this church here too, and so they say, Paul, then don't go. How many times have we wanted to avoid pain or struggle or hardship just because it's hard? And, and, and maybe, maybe lost what God might have done in that moment. Verse 5, it says, When our days were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with the wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. 
And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. And then we went on board the ship and returned home. Verse 7, when we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. And on the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Acts, if you've been around for this season, maybe this name sounds familiar. Acts 6, here's what happens, the first real issue in the church, and it's, it's not... Um, well, it's not completely uncommon to churches today. And, and what's happened is there's, there's two groups of people, all Jewish, all followers of Jesus. So they have both the same original faith and then they have the same kind of the same pursuit of Jesus, the same beliefs about Jesus. But some are what we would call Hebraic Jews. So some are Jews that speak Hebrew and are traditionally and ethnically Jewish. And then we have the Hellenized Jews that are ethnically Jewish. They're Jewish by birth, but they speak Greek. And they don't always observe all the customs of Jewish people. So they may Sabbath differently. They may celebrate the Passover differently or not at all. And so there's this, there's this divide between two cultures. And as we sit here, and I, because I get to travel some and, and talk about church with other leaders, there's, there's a really cool thing that exists here. And we talk about diversity in the church. We're about a third Asian, about a third white, and a third Hispanic, right? Not because we ever tried, not because we were aiming at diversity, just because that's kind of what happened when we loved our neighbor. Our neighbor, that's where our neighbor was, right? Other churches strive to figure out diversity, and, and we kind of just giggle and go, man, we stumbled into it. I don't know. But we're pretty mono, pretty monocultural, right? I mean, we speak English in our service. Not that all of you, some, many of you, in fact, several of you, let's say it that way. Several of you started with a different language, but speak English now. But we still have a very similar culture. Though we have multiple ethnicities, they, they merge together in a culture, and that's what was taking place in Jerusalem. As the church was growing to tens of thousands of people, we had one group of, he, of, of Hebrew or Hebraic Jew widows that were being cared for. And then we had some of these Greek-speaking Jewish widows that were not being cared for. And the divide was along their culture, not their faith. What happens was this becomes a big thing, and the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, they raise up seven men who will later in the Bible be called deacons to serve them, to care for them. We have deacons here. They care for the poor. They care for the disenfranchised. They work with the church in their physical care and physical needs. They collect our offering as a piece of that role, and it's really birthed out of Jerusalem when these seven men are raised up to do this. One of them name is Philip. And Philip fits in that category of Hellenized Jews, more Greek-speaking, less, less Jewish, or less Hebraic, Hebrew-speaking Jew. And so when, the, when, the, when the, the turmoil really hits the church and Stephen is martyred, a lot of people get pushed out of Jerusalem for fear of their own lives, and so he gets driven out of his own home. And we get to watch as Philip becomes an evangelist along the road and leads an Ethiopian eunuch to faith and baptizes him out in the middle of a desert. Now we pick back up the same Philip, and he is living in a town. He's living here where, uh, where Paul arrives at Caesarea. Verse 9, it says, and he, meaning Philip, had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying with many days, a prophet named Agabus came to, down from Judea. 
So prophesy is this. Prophesy, a lot of people think of future telling for prophecy. Prophecy doesn't have to be future telling. It can be in the immediate sense. But what's most important is you're proclaiming God's truth into a setting. So you're speaking what God would say into that setting, proclaiming something counter or, or enlightening to that culture. So when people speak, when people prophesy into a culture, it might be calling them to repentance, or it might be even calling them to something that will happen in the future. In the sense of the four daughters, we're not told what they're said, but in the sense of Agabus, we will be told what he says. And he speaks in the manner of like an Old Testament prophet. Verse 11, it says, And coming to us, he, meaning Agabus, took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and his hands and said thus, the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Here's what Agabus does. Like, straight up out of like an Old Testament prophet, image-driven, very physical, very uh, just amazing. Agabus walks up. He takes the belt from Paul. He binds Paul's hands and feet and says, this is what will happen to the man who owns this belt when he gets to Jerusalem. Now, we have never done that at this church, ever. If you're going to do it to me, let's not start. So, um, but just imagine how that would land, right? Like, this is what's God, what God is going to do. This is a church filled with real people. This is a church that is not perfect. This is a guy in Paul who is not perfect. He's not a superhero. He is a real human being who struggles. And imagine you're Paul now in this setting, and you're told, listen, you will be bound hand and foot when you arrive in Jerusalem. And you can just imagine what that means. That means there's beatings in front of you. That means likely there is death in front of you. All this for proclaiming Jesus to others. Now just imagine in the human sense, in the fleshly sense right now, imagine you're Paul, and here's what Paul must wrestle with. I've given my life to serving Jesus. Like, I, I was a persecutor of Jesus, of those who follow Jesus, excuse me. And when, and when Jesus spoke to me on the road to Damascus, I gave my entire life to serving Jesus and literally spent three years being educated in the gospel, taking his Old Testament highly educated background and driving the gospel deeply into that and understanding how Jesus fits from cover to cover in the Old Testament. And then Paul will become the one who writes the vast majority of the New Testament and who Acts hones down in on and follows Paul's journeys of mission and church planting and follows him all the way back to Jerusalem. If you're Paul, you know there's a moment where you're like, Jesus, how come, why me? Like, why, why would you let them arrest me? Why would you let them beat me? Why would you let them eventually kill me? Like, I've been doing everything you've asked me to do. I've gone into every city. I've really given up my own life and my own home. I don't even have a home. I have a home church in Antioch in Syria, and I'm Jewish from Jerusalem. And I keep getting sent out of the place, even this little place, the home away from home where I'm comfortable, where I have family and friends. Even this, I keep going out. I spend most of my life on the road. Jesus, why me? Would any of us do that? Man, I would. Like at some point, we're asking the most selfish but relatively reasonable question. Like, haven't I kind of earned a little better than this? 
clearly the answer is, as it relates to Jesus, we've earned nothing. Right? And, and as it relates to Jesus, he gave everything. He suffered and died that we might live. We have never been, and I mean humanity has never been the first one to die for their faith. Jesus died for them first. And so we respond. We give no more than Jesus gave for us. In fact, we give less. We never hear Paul say those words, but there's not a one of us in here that wouldn't wrestle with this internally. There's not a one of us that just wouldn't say, really? Like, could, like what, did I go wrong somewhere? What did I miss? Verse 12, it says this. When we had heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. So we highlighted this just a little while ago. The we there, Luke, the author of Acts, is with Paul. Luke, a godly man, an amazing leader. People that love Jesus deeply are, are mature, godly people. That's the we. And here's what, the, here's what the group is. When we heard this, we and the people there in the city urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. So Agabus says this, your hands, your feet, this is how you're going to be bound when you arrive at Jerusalem. But did Agabus say not to go? No. Agabus didn't say not to go. He just said, here's the truth. Here's what lies ahead of you. You will be bound hand and feet. You will be taken prisoner in Jerusalem. Verse 13. Then Paul answered, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Would you say that? Would I say that? Here's what he says, though. You're really making this hard on me. You're really making it hard for me to be obedient to God right now. Yes, I hear what Agabus said, but Agabus didn't say not to go. God had told me before Agabus, God had told me that I would go and that, I would, that affliction was ahead of me. And I knew that when I got here, I'm working my way back in full knowledge of what lays ahead of me. But Jesus is calling me there. If you're a note taker, some well-intentioned bad advice. The church at Ptolemais means well, but is wrong. Like us, the church doesn't understand suffering or hardship, so it tells Paul not to go. In reality, they actually make following God harder on Paul. We don't have a real paradigm for suffering in the church. We don't have an understanding of hardship, that, that hardship is a part of this broken world. In fact, I've sat and I've listened and, I, and I've critiqued this before, I've sat and listened as churches proclaim the gospel to people who have never heard it before. And they portray it like this, like, hey, listen, if you believe that Jesus lived and died and rose again and you say this prayer, like everything gets better. And in some sense, that has truth in it. It's just that in between here and there is a lot of suffering. Some because we live in a flawed and broken world, some because we bring it on ourselves, and some because following Jesus sometimes is super hard. And we are living counter to the culture we're in, which we spend a lot of time talking about. But we live in ways that contrast our culture so openly that it's just hard to do. And it's, and it's hard, and there is a level of suffering. Jesus said this, they hated me, they're gonna hate you. Now when those who are the them in that, those who will hate you when they're in power, sometimes they're suffering and hardship. 
that doesn't mean God's not calling us in that. That doesn't mean that's not where God is leading us. Verse 14, it says, and since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. Since he would not be persuaded, Paul, we, Luke and the others, ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. Obedience and hard callings. How do we as a church cultivate obedience when God is calling us to do hard things? God calls us to do challenging things so he can be glorified through them. You know, we hear of people, uh, we, obviously as a pastor, we talk to a lot of people in churches and people that come in through here. And there's just a sense of when things get hard, we quit, right? When the church goes through a season of hardship, well, let's find another church that isn't going through that. Oh, we changed worship leaders. We like the old one better. Or, um, and and we, we, will, we will spiritualize it. We will make it sound all holy like, oh, I'm just not getting fed there anymore. Oh, you know, I just don't feel the spirit there anymore. And what it is, is we don't have a paradigm for suffering and hardship. We don't have an understanding of when things get hard, that it isn't God removing his blessing, that it may be that the blessing is found through it. Verse 15, and after these days, we got ready and we went up to Jerusalem and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nathan of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. So they arrived now in Jerusalem. Verse 18, and on the following day, Paul went in with us to James. Now, James is the half-brother of Jesus who became a follower of Jesus after Jesus died and rose again. Now, just, just imagine you're the younger brother of Jesus. Like, my older brother just thinks he's God, right? I mean, like, so, right, like, there's this, there's this sense that there's going to be this disconnect, and there's these things, and you saw them raised in your home, and you don't necessarily understand everything, and you grow up with Jesus. Like, a lot of people had older brothers that were hard to follow, but Jesus had to be the worst, right? Or the best, or worst, whatever that would look like, right? And so you grow up, and you, and you hear him, and even we see passages in the Gospels where Jesus' own family, his mom, his brothers, they come and go, listen, I think you're crazy. You need to eat. You need some rest. They literally don't understand him. Just imagine, just try and be in their shoes for a minute. He'd be really hard to understand as a family member, right? Well, G then James, his younger half-brother, son of Mary and Joseph, right, goes on to see him die on a cross, be buried in a tomb, and come back to life. That bridges the gap for my, little, my older brother's really hard to follow, Right? Like he's dead and then he's alive again was a compelling thing for James. James goes on to be the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He goes on to pastor tens of thousands of people. And many, you know, Barnabas and Paul get sent out of there. And many things, Peter gets sent out of there. There's this hub in Jerusalem of the first church. And James is that leader. And so Paul arrives back in Jerusalem. He goes and he meets with James. Here's what takes place. On the following day, he went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. And after greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So Paul goes back, and remember, Paul's background is a Jewish religious leader, a quite an elite leader, trained by one of the most famous Jewish rabbis ever. And so he goes back in, and his story is, listen what Jesus is doing in the non-Jewish people. 
Here's what he's doing in the Greek people and the Syrian people and all these other people out here. God is is redeeming and saving non-Jewish people all over the place. Paul goes back and celebrates this with the Jewish church. Verse 20, it says, and when they had heard it, they glorified God and they said to him, you see, my brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. Now, here's what happens. Paul shares this story with James, and it says this, and then they heard it, they glorified God. That brief little sentence right there is they celebrate what God is doing outside the Jewish community, kind of. They celebrate it, but watch how fast they pivot this passage. It says, and they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. So here's what that verse of celebrating and glorifying God for these non-Jewish, these Gentile conversions, that's gone in just a handful of words. And then they go on to say, listen, but there's tens of thousands of Jews here that are zealous for the law. And when they say zealous for the law, for the teachings of Moses. And what has taken root in the Jewish Christian church is what some of the other books of the Bible, Romans, Corinthians, et cetera, talk about Judaizers. And here's what they would do in this very Jewish setting. They would say, in order to become a Christian, you have to be a good Jew first. So if you're coming in from the outside, you have to go through the ceremonial washings and circumcision. You have to obey the feasts and the dietary laws. You have to go through and you have to adhere to all these things. Now remember, this is Acts 21. Just six chapters ago, there was a gigantic council back in Jerusalem where they settled the matter once for all, what had to happen in Gentile churches when non-Jewish people were coming to faith. Did they have to go back and walk through Judaism to get to Jesus? And the answer was an overwhelming no. And they said this, they gave them three three things. They told them to stay away from idolatry, Stay away from cultural pollution and sexual sin. That's it. Avoid those three things because they'll take you off track and just begin with the gospel and move forward. You don't have to worry about Judaism. Paul goes back to Jerusalem and that same church is still very, very Jewish. And so the church there is not quite understanding how non-Jewish people who are not entering through Judaism are coming to faith. But listen, they're unclean people. They don't celebrate any of what we do. They don't adhere to the law of Moses. They, what are they, I don't understand why they're all coming to faith. And, and we have a lot of that here. Conservative churches don't understand how other churches do this. Protestant churches don't understand how Orthodox churches work. Just, there's a lot of this, like we don't have a paradigm for how they do things. And so immediately we assume they're not, they don't fit. And there's a lot of tribalism within churches, denominations, and, 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 and non-denominational churches, and how this all fits together. And the immediate thing is to say, well, they don't fit. And that's what's happening in Jerusalem. It says they are zealous for the law, and basically what they want is a very Jewish version of Christianity. Verse 21, it says, and when they have been told about you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. So there's a, there's a false narrative too. It's not just that we don't like the way they do things. There's a we hear that you're teaching against Moses, which is not true. It's a false narrative about Paul. Verse 22, it says, then what then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. 
we have four men who are under a vow. Now, this under a vow, not something we talk about here very often. It's not like a monastic vow or a priestly vow. It's not like that. It was a short-term, uh, meaning it could be a couple weeks to a couple years. It was a short-term vow that, that people would come under called a Nazarite vow. You can find it in the Old Testament and look at it. And there's basically just a few things. You would stay away from non-Jewish people, unclean people. You wouldn't go near dead bodies, even if you're best friend or your father or mother or your son or daughter died, you would not go near a, a, a dead body and you would abstain from alcohol. There was this, it's kind of like modern day fasting, if you will. There are things you cut out of your life for a season. And that season was to press in deeper to God. Modern day Christians talk more about fasting. Jews had fasting and vows. It's kind of a different setting, very similar. And so here's what James says. So the leaders of the Jerusalem church are telling Paul, listen, undoubtedly this church is going to hear that you're here. They're going to hear you, and they believe that you teach people to forsake Moses. So how do we do damage control? How do we navigate this story? How do we, how do we make sure that the people don't kind of revolt against you? So here's what we do. We have four men who are going to take a Nazarite vow. Verse 24, he says, take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus, all will know that there's nothing in what they have been told about you and that you yourself also live in observance with the law. So here's the solution. Hey, Paul, there's these four men that are going to take a Nazarite vow. And the Nazarite vow starts out like this. They shave their heads, they shave their entire bodies in a symbol of, of uh, purifying themselves. And then for as long as the vow goes on, whether it goes on two years or whatever, they don't shave, they don't cut their hair, they don't do it. And it's a symbol of how long they've been under this vow. But there's a cost to it. It's a religious ceremony. There's, there's some expense to it. It's not just going home and clipping your head real quick, right? And so he says, Paul, here's what I want you to do. Take these four men, join them, and pay for everyone to come under their vow. So this is the solution. Hey, Paul, you should have to sacrifice you should have to pay. You should have to deny yourself things you don't have to deny yourself. You should come under this just to prove that the, to the Jewish church here that loves these old traditional things that you really, really are okay. So go and, and do this to yourself. Go sacrifice. Now just imagine, what's Paul's sacrifice in coming to Jerusalem already? Like, they're going to kill me eventually here. They will. It'll be in Rome, but it'll be here. It'll start here. So they're going to beat me and kill me. My life will end for the gospel, but that's not enough for you, church. I now have to deny myself things that are just unnecessary, more costly, more than required. Here's a note for you. Paul agrees to a big sacrifice to prove himself to the Jewish Christians, though he owes them nothing. He does this to advance the gospel at his own cost. Verse 25, it says, But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. And they reinforce what was made, that decision that was made at the Jerusalem councils six chapters ago, many years prior to this. Here's what they say. Listen, we still agree that the Gentiles don't have to change. But while you're here, would you do this? And Paul consents, and he comes under a season of a vow. He pays for the others, and he adheres to it. 
Jesus came and sacrificed for us. Jesus came and gave his life that we might be able to be found in him. And that all we would have to do is to believe in Jesus, to, to come to faith in Jesus, to let Jesus, to allow Jesus to lead and govern our life, to, that he would fill us with his spirit, that he would empower us to live for him, that there is nothing more that is required. There are some things that we practice, like baptism, where we profess our faith publicly and, and God uses that to strengthen us. There's communion, which we will do in a minute, where we take communion, we remember the sacrifice of Jesus, and that we remind ourselves that there's nothing we can do to add to that. But then there's nothing we can do to add to our salvation, but there is a calling that we get to live out that Jesus gives each one of us. Ephesians 2 says this, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his, Christ's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're saved by grace through faith. Our response is faith. God's work is already done. We respond in faith. And when we do so, we respond and, and we're transformed by Jesus and we're called to do things. Not to work for our salvation, but to do the things that God has called us into. To live the life, the calling, the mission that Jesus has given us. So there's nothing we can do to add to our salvation. But once we are Christ's, that we would turn and live the life he has called us to live. Verse 26, back in Acts, it says this, Then Paul took the men, and on the next day he purified himself along with them. And he went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. So Paul takes that on. Paul knows there's nothing he can add to his salvation. There's nothing necessary. All of it has been done. So how do we take this, and what do we do with this? We started with the idea that, that to obey Christ in hardship and hard times to endure for the sake of Christ is the calling of the church. And we have to ask ourselves, and I'll give you some community group questions also in a minute, but has there ever been anything that we were called to that was just hard? That we didn't understand, like, okay, God, why would I? It seems like you could kind of open the waters and I could go through on dry land to kind of use a Bible story, right? Like there's an easier way to get from here to there, but yet you're calling me to the hard way. Why would, you, why would we do this? There's all that time when we wrestle with this. And there's no way that we, I can give another hundred examples so that everybody has an example that fits their setting. But Paul says it like this. He says it in 1 Corinthians 9. Later on, he will, after this, all this takes place in Jerusalem, he'll write this. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not my, being myself under the law that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. He says, so when I go to Jerusalem, I'll do anything Jewish they need. I will sacrifice, I will pay for other sacrifice, I will deny myself the comforts of being in Jerusalem just for the sake of being a witness to the Jews. Their laws, I'll obey their laws. I won't go against the laws of Jesus, but I will do whatever so that I might win some to Jesus. 
when I go among the pagans and the people out there that seemingly have no rules, I won't break the rules of Jesus, but I'll live like I don't have to live under the rules. I won't be disobedient to Jesus, but I will live as far as I can into the culture with them either way, to the strict, to the loose. I will do either. To the weak, I'll become weak. To the strong, I can just, I can go and live. And I do it all, he says, for the sake of the gospel. I do it all. He says, every cost laid on me, I will do it all so that people can see Jesus. So wherever we are, that's our calling. See, Paul, Paul is not some superhero of the faith that is some rock star example that none of us can ever live to. Paul is a real human being, and we are all called to look like Paul. We don't necessarily have to go to different countries and do those things, but we are all called to live as sacrificially for the gospel as Paul did. Here's a couple takeaways. A servant for all. Paul sees his life as a servant to others, making others more important than himself because he is a servant of Christ. Who in our lives are we called to serve and how might viewing ourselves as servants change how we live? Who is it that, that God is calling us to serve? us to be a witness to, us to live like, us to go out to, and at whatever cost, show Jesus to them. Who are those people that we might reach them for the sake of Jesus? To the Jews and the Gentiles, using Paul's language, Paul sees himself as a missionary to everyone. He fits in with all people by surrendering his freedoms and preferences without compromising his faith. Where are we called to live like missionaries and sacrifice for others? I had to think through this and just think of the different generations of church that we've been a part of. Everything from the pipe, organ, and choir on down to the rock band and, and, and the bilingual service and, the, and just the different cultures that we've seen even in what eventually became this church. And there were seasons, and there still are, where people in the room had to sacrifice for the sake of the others in the room. I promise you, the folks from El Dorado don't love the music today right? And I can promise you that there were some young families that joined Eldorado when there was still a pipe organ and a choir who didn't love the music either. And it's something as simple as that where we say, you know what? The mature in faith or to sacrifice for those who have no faith or are immature in their faith, that we might be able to reach them with the gospel. Where is God calling you to something hard? And don't write it off as if God's not in it just because it's hard. If you're in community groups, and I hope you are, here's some questions we will, I've already texted out to the community group leaders. What is the calling that God has placed on your life that is the hardest? Is there sin in your life that prevents your calling? You could swap out that word preference in there too. That might help. Does following Jesus faithfully seem to me more than you are able to do? And is there a task that God has placed on you that seems too hard? We just say this in the Western church, we don't have much of a paradigm for hardship. And we tend to say, well, if it's getting hard, clearly I'm being disobedient or God's not in it. And let me suggest to you, if it's hard, it's a good chance God's in it. And he can be glorified in your obedience through that. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. You come and you, you, you came and you endured. You suffered that we might live. You have never called us to do something you have not done already. Jesus, you paved the way. You suffered and died. You rose from the grave. You've given us new life, and you've called us to take that new life and live it for you. Sometimes, Jesus, in all of our lives, we will endure places 
where suffering is actually the only way forward. And in that, when we are obedient, you will be glorified. That doesn't mean that everything hard is of you and that everything easy is not of you. That means when you call us and we know that sometimes it'll be hard. Let us be obedient in those moments that you might be glorified. It's in your name we pray. Amen.